0: Good afternoon, and welcome to the Council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello. Welcome, folks. We have a wonderful show set for you today here on uh, Good Friday. Uh, So for all of you who celebrate Good Friday, Good Friday to you. And uh, what a celebration to all those who uh, follow that tradition. So hope you have a beautiful weekend ahead of you. Uh, I just want to do a quick shout-out to KUHS TV Radio, the stream right here in Denver, Colorado. We are broadcasting live to you here and uh, broadcasting all across the nation and all around the world. We have some of the best programming uh, that any station has to offer, uh, from talk shows to uh, music shows, DJs. Uh, we've got some of the most incredibly talented professionals, personalities, programming you're ever going to find you're just I mean we've got some great great content so tune in to us our reach continues to grow we're touching uh, lives all across this globe we're reaching in six continents this show in particular is reaching in over 40 different countries uh, we thank you all for tuning in every every couple of weeks to the council to listen to us And to hear the people that we bring on to share their wisdom, their insights, and to, you know, help bring uh, hope and healing uh, in a very difficult and troubled world right now. Uh, We stand and we want to be a beacon of hope in this world uh, that's filled with a lot of fear and distrust and separation. Uh, We strive to bring our city and our nation and our world together by providing a platform to celebrate our commonalities, our goodness, and our humanity. So that's us here at KUHS-TV Radio, The Stream. Uh, Also, I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, I have a new website for all of you who are tuning in. It's called CoreSoulHealing.com. It's www.CoreSoulHealing.com. We have just launched, uh, if you're looking for any kind of coaching classes, retreats, we've got some incredible programs to help you to heal from trauma, to reconnect on a deeper mind-body-soul connection and to restore the soul. That's what we're about. And so check it out. We've got some great things that are coming up this summer. You won't want to miss it. Also, I have a dear friend of mine who was on the show uh, a couple months ago. Her name is Linda Tai. She is a trauma, a somatic trauma specialist. She is having a class that's beginning next week, uh, a somatic strategies class. It's I believe it's Uh, 12 weeks, I think, Uh, it's fantastic. If you can get into this class, uh, you're going to learn so much about how to regulate yourself, to uh, to self-regulate, understanding the nervous system, how to be able to recognize when you're moving into anxiety, and some strategies, some, some somatic strategies to help you to learn how to get back into your body. It's fantastic. I took the class myself. Uh, I couldn't recommend it more highly. She's outstanding. Uh, check out collectivelyrooted.com. That's collectivelyrooted.com uh, to sign up for the class. It's with uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and their group. Um, so if you are interested, please, please check it out and sign up. Oh, Well, today's guest is, uh, I've had a chance and an opportunity to speak with her before we came on air. And, uh... You know, as, as a veteran, I'm, I'm, I'm very sensitive to, uh, to whether people are coming from a real authentic place or not. Um, if they're genuine and sincere about their love of veterans and their, the things that, uh, that trouble them, that, uh, that can cause heartache and, and uh, deep disturbance in their emotional and, and, and psychological well, well-being. And uh, our guest today is the real deal. She's a real a real doc, you know, and a doc is someone who's, is beyond a doctor. They're, they're someone who's looking out for your best interest. They don't, they're not, they're, they're deeper than just someone who's filling out prescriptions or, you know, doing assessments and all that kind of stuff. They're there because they really care. They really, truly care. And uh, our guest today is going to share some of her wisdom with us and experience on how to help us to move through the pandemic, the impact that it's having on us, and also, because she has written this incredible book. It's called Warrior. How to support those who protect us. Uh, I spent the last uh, week reading and diving into this book and, and uh, she has tapped into what really is going on inside of warriors, uh, what's going on in their hearts, what they hide from us, and how important it is to have trust uh, whenever we engage with people who come from a warrior class tradition. So, without further ado, let me introduce to you my esteemed guest. Her name is Dr. Shauna Doc Springer. She is a best selling author, frequently requested keynote speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. She is the author of Warrior How to Support Those Who Protect Us, and the co author of Beyond the Military. A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration. She's a Harvard graduate who has become a trusted doc to our nation's military warfighters. She navigates difficult cultures with exceptional agility. As chief psychologist for Stella, she advances a new model for treating psychological trauma that combines biological and psychological interventions. Doc Springer is a licensed psychologist who is frequently sourced by the media for her uniquely prospective insights on trauma recovery, post-traumatic growth, psychological health, and interpersonal relationships, developed from two decades of work at the extremes. Doc Springer's work has been featured in multiple media outlets, including CNN, Vice, NPR, NBC, CBS Radio, Forbes Business Insider, Military Times, Gun Talk Radio, Coffee or Die Magazine, the Marine Corps Gazette, Havoc Journal, Thrive Global, Police One, Anxiety.org, Washington Post, Military.com, and Psychology Today. Her website is www.docshanaspringer.com. Again, that's DocShaunaspringer.com. Welcome to the council, Doc Springer.
1: Thanks, Charlie. It's
0: good to be here. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here uh, and to join us on the council, to be able to share your insights and, and for us to talk a little bit here uh, about your incredible book. I mean, I, I'm just like I was sharing here in the opening uh, monologue. You have such a, uh, a sincerity and authenticity about you. Um, could you just share with us a little bit about your background a little bit more about it and, and what was your first experience uh, working with veterans?
1: Sure, so I am a licensed psychologist as, as you said and I really don't do clinical work anymore. I've really gone free range and I have a number of different engagements with people in the military tribe and the veteran tribe in terms of uh, going into their private circles and their reunions and also supporting them through my role as chief psychologist at STELLA Mm. um, as they seek innovative treatments for post-traumatic stress and other types of traumas. So I'm really doing a lot of strategic consulting and advising and doing a lot of education and speaking as well as writing these days. But to get to the, the heart of your question, um i really didn't plan to work with veterans Mm -hmm. um i couldn't say that it was something that i always knew that i would do or anything like that but there was a recognition when i first started working with the military population and it was during my uh, internship year i had a rotation at the gainesville va and it just felt i just felt at home Mm. with those i was serving Mm. and so that was really my first clue And then I took a job at the VA in Northern California and was there for eight years, working with hundreds of veterans with all kinds of different presenting concerns and challenges and just really felt like this was a population I was meant to work with. Uh, So it's become very central to my heart. uh, And I also wanna help other people, um, civilians across America really understand things about trauma and recovery based on what I've learned from working
0: with our warfighter community. Well, and it's, uh, there's so much to learn from our warfighter community. <laughs> I mean, they have a lot of lessons for us to teach and a lot of wisdom that they carry. And, uh, and I really want to dive into this, but I know, you know there's so many of us, and one of the themes of the show today was to talk a little bit about the impact that COVID-19 is having on all of us. Uh, because people are feeling it pretty acutely right now. And, and we're already getting into about over a little over a year into the pandemic and some of the uh, restrictions and limitations that we have had. And uh, we've been in quarantine. We've been in isolation. We have been separated from our coworkers, our loved ones. What are some of the effects of COVID psychologically that's happening to many of us that we may not re- recognize we may be experiencing and that we might be overlooking right now.
1: Yeah, that's exactly what you just said, Charlie, about overlooking it right now. So I think you know, one of the things we've learned this year is that it's harder to do nothing than to do something in response to a threat. So we are wired to respond to a threat with action. And what we've been asked to do, and this makes logical sense, but it's really hard to do it in practice is to shelter in place and restrict our activities and restrict our connection with each other. It's easier in some ways to, to take on a challenge with direct action. In some ways, the, the bombing of London and people being told to you know, carry on mm-hmm. would be a, an easier psychological challenge. To really show a healthy form of defiance and really do something in response to a threat, what becomes really hard is to just stay in your foxhole for the better part of a year and and do nothing at all. So people really miss the point when they say things like, you know, our generation had to, you know, go and fight this war or do this thing, and we're just being asked to watch Netflix. Uh, That really misses the point psychologically. Uh, So that would be one thing. And then I think. With this year, it's just been, um, there's a lot of background stress that people really don't put their finger on and acknowledge or even understand how to talk about it and think about it. So losing access to those incidental social connections that give our lives structure and meaning and purpose, uh, the daily contact with coworkers and friends, running into people you know in your community at Starbucks, there are all of these subtle changes um, in how we operate with each other that builds into a great amount of collective distress that's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Even, uh, I'll give you one example, and then I'll, I'll stop and you know kind of see where you want to take this, but even wearing masks everywhere. The thing about masks is you can't see people's facial mm-hmm. expressions, and so it's really hard to tell if people are um, squinting at you suspiciously or are they smiling, and that's why the corners of their eyes are crinkled up. So all of that um, and data mm-hmm. and, you know, I was in a grocery store the other day and one of my neighbors said, oh, hey, Shauna. And I hadn't had someone address me in public in the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. And that's really weird because I'm really connected in my community. And so it's almost, you know, when you go out, you're gonna see people that you know just in the course of a normal day. Mm-hmm. And so all of that is is such a profound change that we often Fail to appreciate, you know, the 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 depth of that impact.
0: Absolutely, and you know, as what you were saying, you can't tell when you have those masks on if you're smiling or somebody squinting their eyes or what they might be doing. And those are we so much of our interaction with people is nonverbal cues. Like yeah. about seventy percent of our our non nonver- our communication is nonverbal. We can sense by whether somebody looks, the way they smile or they frown or they 're posturing all kinds of signals that alerts us to say well this is a, this is a safe situation. this is an unsafe situation. This is going to be a happy conversation. This is not going to be a happy conversation. All of those things. And it, it, it almost like it, we've been atrophied because we've been in isolation for so long that uh, boy, when we hear it, it sounds very foreign to us. And I think that's something we have to, we have to acknowledge and recognize.
1: We need to connect to survive. We mm-hmm. need to belong. We are social creatures. And what this disease has done is divided and conquered. It's taught us to see each other as a potential threat. As a potential source of disease that's really dangerous psychologically and as well you know to your point with the masks on people feel more anonymous and some of the behaviors they would never consider doing Mm -hmm. um, are things that are becoming habitual now you know if you go out on a bike path and someone is wearing a mask and they cut you off they might not have ever done that before if their whole face had been exposed but now people feel uh, more anonymous. Mm-hmm. And that can also lead to things that are really not helpful for keeping a connected society together.
0: Yeah, we can hide behind our masks. I mean, that, that's the thing in psychology is that very often we put on our masks in, in culture, in society. We have our, our, our you know, our, our business person mask, and then we have our father, mother mask, and we have our, you know, a, a Dr. Mask, we have all these different masks and and now we actually really have a mask and that kind of covers our face. And so um, we can do things that uh, are not in our best interest or in our culture's best interest because it, it, it changes something that's happening up here. We don't see things. We're not seeing things clearly. And then it also leads to narratives, I think, in the mind where you can think somebody's doing something to you and they're not doing anything to you. But because you misread the signals that we have, our evolution has allowed us to pick up on and perceive, because you're not getting that information coming in, you can look at someone and, and think that they're upset with you when they're not, and then you can make a decision to do something about that, but your information is is completely, uh, you know, wrong it's 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 not yeah. correct
1: that's it we get so much data from that nonverbal feedback and there's also this piece about the fear of you know what could happen many of us have frankly just dealt with it and compartmentalized it and suppressed it mm-hmm. for the better part of a year we know the numbers we you know see alarming news stories but we try to keep it out of our minds. Mm-hmm. I had an interesting conversation with a Harvard College friend of mine yesterday, and she said that she didn't realize how much fear she was holding until there was an opportunity to potentially get the vaccine, mm-hmm. because she was on a lower priority list. And so other people in her circle that were older or had you know other reasons were getting the vaccine, and she's really wanting it. And now that there's sort of like this potential relief or end insight to this fear. That's when it became very clear to her just how much this was having an impact as kind of a background stressor. Mm -hmm. So we're all carrying background stressors that we have never carried before. And this kind of trauma is no longer an abstract concept, mm-hmm. I think, to many of us now.
0: Well, and, then, uh, and those of us who are working in the trauma field are aware that <clears throat> once this passes, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be needing some, some kind of assistance, yes. some kind of help. Because uh, when you're in a crisis mode, as a lot of veterans know and understand, when you're there, you're focused on the mission, you're getting clear, you're, you're surviving that time, that moment. And then when that time passes... And it will pass. There is a your, – your, your whole system starts to come down because you're not on that hypervigilant state anymore. And now you're coming down from it. And then all of a sudden, all that stuff you've been holding back, the fears that your friend was having, about, all of a sudden start coming to the surface. And, uh, and people need to understand uh, the nature of trauma and the road to recovery. How has this year – Uh, Doc Springer, how has this year helped us to understand uh, the nature of trauma and the road to recovery from its impacts?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that people seem to be having kind of one of two pretty different reactions to this year. Uh, Some of the people that I work with in the warfighter community have had a number of past traumas, but have, um, have actually done really well this year. Um, And that's an interesting thing. And as I talk to them and I'm curious about that, what I've come to understand is that it's because they don't feel so much like strangers in a strange land anymore. For many years, they felt like alien creatures or ghosts that were invisible to society and, and holding a kind of trauma experience that nobody really understood. And now I think we're all going through this trauma collectively. And people are being frankly humbled by an understanding of how much trauma can impact you, Mm -hmm. your way of thinking, the quality of the sleep you get, the quality of your interactions, all of it's impacted by trauma exposure. And so many of us are, you know, dealing with grief and, and traumatic grief that's cut off and things that previously our military population had a disproportionate burden to bear. Mm -hmm. And so they feel more like a part of society. And then there are also people that I work with who've said, you know, I've been through trauma before. I know who my tribe is, and this is civilians and military alike. I know who has my back and I can survive this. Um, I know how strong I am because I've come through things that are difficult. And so these are people that have come through past traumas and really experienced a powerful form of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And they are taking this year on as just another challenge they know that they are equipped to face. There are others, which is completely understandable as well, for whom this trauma is echoing past traumas. So Mm -hmm. having to be hypervigilant 24-7, having a continuous sense of threat Uh, Not knowing whether you can trust other people to be around them if they're safe, if they're going to communicate a disease to somebody you love, Um, fearing that somebody could could get a disease, you know, and sort of like figuratively step on an IED and, and get really sick really quickly and be gone. These are all experiences that can echo past trauma. And so it can have a greatly exaggerated impact for others of us. Um, So both reactions make sense, and my theory is that to the degree that you have felt a sense of mastery and growth from past traumas, you will be able to weather this storm a little bit better than people who feel like they are helpless Mm -hmm. in the, the face of this ongoing trauma with, you know, who knows when it will end? Although the vaccine has certainly given us hope that there is an end in sight
0: now. No, absolutely, and I know that uh, you know we were, we were remarking about how sometimes you, you you're the invisible enemy that's kind of like lingering on you, and you're not sure if somebody's going to be passing it, and so you know if some people's reactions who are not uh who have not had some tra- trauma in their past life are so scared they won't even get close to people no. but then all of a sudden i like an experience that in my family one of us had covid and it got to one of our uncles and our aunts and then there was this explosion of like how could you why did you go to the gym what were you thinking i mean all those things were happening and it was because of the stress that was underneath all of the this crisis mode that we were under, that we didn't really acknowledge until all of a sudden one of us one of us got it. And fortunately, everybody's healthy, and it was a mild um, mild strain. Um, but, yeah, it's very, very palpable. And so to help people to navigate through this is going to be extraordinarily critical, especially as this vaccine uh, is gets more to, more to more and more people and people start uh, releasing the tension and all of this stuff that they've been holding back starts coming to the surface.
1: And to your point, it's not going to go away just because we're all vaccinated or mm-hmm. enough of us are vaccinated. There, there's going to be a very long tail Uh, No matter what, psychologically, there's going to be a very long tail of recovery because we've now been conditioned and we've conditioned ourselves to treat the world as unsafe, to treat other people as a potential disease vector. And it's not going to just change overnight to kind of release that tension and feel safe again in the world. And unfortunately, what we've experienced as we're coming out of this is a number of mass violence events Mm at a very vulnerable time, when we need to feel safe navigating the world again. Yeah. Um, so these kinds of events are having an even greater outsized impact from what they would normally have.
0: Absolutely. Well, we just had that uh, uh, terrible tragedy and massacre here in Boulder um, yes. where we had uh, somebody who just, you know, killed 10 innocent people that were going to, grocery store over here and to go buy food in one of those places that, you know, is the sacrosanct place that people are just living their life. I mean, it's just the horror of that. And so the moment that people feel this sense of, wow, there's 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 that light at the end of the tunnel, this sense of hope and and, and promise that things are going to get better. All of a sudden you have something like that happen. And boy, you know, the community right now is hurting, is reeling, is there's no sense in what happened. Um, and it's just, it, 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 it amplifies the yes. feelings of fear and insecurity and terror and everything that's conditioned towards uh, traumatic experiences.
1: My heart really goes out to your community. You know, you're coming out of Denver and that um, the community there, how could it be otherwise? Yeah. You know, even those of us who are not in that community We still feel connected and we still put ourselves in that picture of what if we were shopping? What if Mm -hmm. someone we love were in that place? Um, All the more so, when Mm -hmm. you know the place where it happened and it's, like you said, sacrosanct. Because it's just a common everyday thing Mm -hmm. that you need to go and buy food for yourself and your family. Mm -hmm. So for something like that to happen does create a sense of terror. Terror is a good word and it's creating that sense of terror after a year of kind of background terror mm-hmm. and then there's this acute terror right at the end so my heart really goes out to you and i would i would want people to know that my organization stella um just put a clinic in denver uh. this week uh we're taking care of, of symptoms of trauma and I'm, I'm happy to talk about that if you want um but we are definitely scaling up to meet the needs of people that are impacted by this trauma and, and all kinds of traumas this year.
0: I would, I would love at the end of the show, please, I would love for you to share that for right. people who are, to, who are listening, who I know are grieving, who are hurting and are, are reeling back from this. I, you know, I went to the site. I went to, um, I went to the site twice to pay my uh, respects and to grieve and to mourn with the community. And uh, the things that people post and the love and support. I mean Boulder's a beautiful, beautiful city. And the the people are, are good people, strong people, and uh, but they're hurting. And then you would see these posters of these children who had written things like, I'm six years old and I'm I'm so sorry this happened to you, and I'm scared and afraid. I mean, just like gut-wrenching things. And we need to know that there's there's resources out there to help people that are, you know, it's very easy. To, like veterans do. This is why I want. We're going to get into the book here, where we tend to close up. We tend to, and 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 block all that stuff in, and, and it's not good. It's not good. It'll 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 eventually come out. So
1: it is better for those children to express that fear. Yeah. And that helplessness. And have an adult that they trust speak with them about that and listen to whatever they need to say and one of the things I would offer before we we talk about my book if I could is um, that for parents who have kids it's sometimes hard to know how to talk to kids Mm -hmm. and you know we used to have mr. Rogers who would talk with kids and (laughs) you know if I'm ever given opportunities to do that kind of work I'd love to share some some ideas and and for this one, I would really say that, speaking of veterans, what I know to be true is that there are many people in our society that are protectors by nature. And there are people like those who serve in our military, our first responders, our police officers, and civilians who are wired to be protectors. And there are many more of those people in our society than there are bad people that, or people that are unhealthy Um, emotionally unhealthy enough to do something horrible like this Mm -hmm. and so I want my kids to know that we are surrounded by protectors they are with us and among us in our society I'm very glad of it I have a special relationship with our society's protectors and I trust them to protect us even if it means risking their lives that is not just something that people do because they took an oath of service that is a higher calling of people that are wired like warriors. And there are many more of those in our society than there are people that would do the sort of thing that just happened in Boulder.
0: Yes, there is. <clears throat> They're all over the place. And, it is, and you're right. We are wired that way. It is innate nope. to us. We can't help ourselves. That's why we are drawn to these kinds of callings that lead us to be the protectors of the tribe. Protectors of the group and and there 's more of us out there and and that 's what 's encouraging is that there's people there that want to protect us and we if we understand the nature of the warrior and the nature of tribe, we can really make a difference in the communities because we 're going to be reaching out to them and we're because they 're going to exude the strength, the clarity of purpose the mission oriented uh you know, way of seeing things uh, that can help us to remain calm because they've been through those crises. They've been through those tragedies. They know how to deal with it. And so it's leaning on them rather than alienating them, leaning on them that we can gain their strength and help us to move through these dark times. I want to get into your book. (laughs) So... um, your book here, I mean, it's it's amazing, uh, Doc Springer. It's amazing. It's warrior, and this incredible cover. I mean, it see it really exemplifies um, the weight and the cost that so many of us warriors uh, go through in our in our call to serve. And um, could you just share with us a little bit about what motivated you to, or inspired you to write this book?
1: Definitely. Um, Well, first of all, I was put up to it. Uh, It was in my last chapter of the book, I talk about the story behind why I wrote Warrior, but it was one of my last sessions with a patient when I was in the VA who had served in 5th group, Special Forces in 5th group. And he asked me to write a book. He said, I've had other therapists, other psychologists for, for years before I worked with you, and you understand things and you understand how we're wired and you connect with us in a way that's just different and you need to write a book about it what you know and what you've learned from us and what you see to be true Um, and he challenged me and and sort of extracted a promise from me Mm -hmm. and told me that he would check up on me in a year because he knows that if i give my word um, same is true for anything if i say i'm going to show up somewhere something really bad has to have happened for me to not show up for what I commit to. So it's part of how, you know, I feel we need to build and hold trust. So he made me promise and it turned out to be such a gift because the reality was when I terminated, and that's just a clinical word for to end a clinical relationship. When I terminated hundreds of veteran patients, I did it the slow, hard way that felt right for me. Um, I terminated those patients over a period of approximately four months. I called every single one of my patients because I didn't want anybody to get a letter from the VA saying I had moved on. That's not acceptable when you're holding trust with your patients. Mm -hmm. I wanted to call every single one of them and talk to them on the phone and see who needed a session, who needed to come in, maybe a few sessions give them warning, help them, you know, come through that time of transition. Because that didn't happen when I came in. They just had a deep attachment wound from losing a provider they trusted Mm -hmm. very deeply. And so when I came in, um, I had a deficit of trust to overcome, as we often do, Mm -hmm. civilians working with the military. Um, And so I had worked really hard to build and hold that trust and I wanted to honor it all the way through. As a result, I was sitting in all of these sessions that were emotionally brutal. Frankly, Charlie, mm-hmm. uh, just really absorbing their last words to me. They were very gracious about me moving on. They knew I was still going to be on mission mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, but it was hard, and a number of them went into crisis, and it was scary, and I, I worried about them. And um, I had one of them, you know, come onto campus and and cut himself up and you know that was a crisis so it was a tumultuous time Mm -hmm. and i still was committed to to doing it right so at the end of that time when i finally kind of had seen everybody that wanted to come in i then had to our earlier conversation my delayed reaction Mm -hmm. because in my own way there's a kind of warriorship that's required a different kind of warriorship to be a healer and so I was compartmentalizing all of that and just mm-hmm. working with my patients and focusing on getting them taken care of. And then I had this delayed reaction and it surprised me and, and actually kind of, um, it, was, it was hard at first. I didn't know well, what is this feeling? Yeah. And I realized that it's, it's grief. It was a form of grief. And it's not that my patients uh, took care of me. It's not that they knew much, if anything, about me. Um, You know, little things, Mm -hmm. you know, which is kind of part of being a human in the room, but it was about them. But I still cared deeply for them and about them and supported them to change their lives. Over eight years, I was in service to them. And so I had this grief reaction and Warrior became the way to honor that grief. It was the way to take all of that grief and find a meaning in it, find purpose in it and channel it into speaking the truth that i knew about where the suffering is where the hidden pain is how do you really understand people that are wired like warriors and how do you support them well and bring them all the way home from war whether they deployed or not Mm -hmm. how do you bring them all the way home from the warrior role that they held in the military and that's what the book is really about i didn't plan to bring it out in a global pandemic didn't predict that. <laughs> um, but, it's kind of hard yeah, to
0: predict that one. <laughs> yeah, as as the year has right.
1: unfolded, what I've learned is that there's so much in my book that can be applied to all of us and how we recover and how we heal from trauma and navigate times of disruptive change.
0: Absolutely, so I'm
1: about to really release a, a second edition mm-hmm. and put some additional material to to help bridge that that understanding
0: for, for all of us, really. Well, it's uh, it's fantastic. And you really, I mean, you were talking about uh, grieving and and it's so important. I think a lot of times we don't understand what healthy grieving is all about. Um, You know, whether you served on the front lines or you worked in uh, support functions or whatever, there's sometimes we struggle with certain things that come up and we don't know who as veterans, we don't know we can talk to somebody. You know, when I was doing the things and that's what really struck me with with and and especially this part about grieving and being able to understand, you know, uh, can I trust you with the things that are going on inside of me? How can I trust? You know, when I worked on uh, in Los Angeles, I was working on a, the nuclear warfare program. Things were happening to me. I was waking up with nuclear apocalyptic nightmares. I was frozen in my bed. I was giving night sweats. I was waking up, you know, hearing explosions going on around me. And I didn't know if I could trust anybody by telling these kinds of things. And so it was, you know, how do I how do you mourn? How do you grieve? And And I think these are the things that are overlooked is is the importance of healthy grieving and establishing trust with our care caretakers. Could you go and explain that a little bit more deeply than uh, um, what I just articulated?
1: Sure. So during the eight years I was at the VA, here's what I learned during those years. I learned that uh, warriors often hold their grief. And they lock it in the vault because they feel a kind of um, loyalty to those they've lost. It feels sacred to them. Mm -hmm. And the pain of grief is intertwined and bound up with the love they feel for their brothers and sisters in arms. So to reveal that grief um, is not instinctive. And it's actually very hard for them to do and they're concerned that a provider will tell them to, oh, that's pain, we're going to process it and move on. Because that's what providers do for trauma. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a logical assumption. You know, the goal of trauma-focused care is to kind of help people process it and and disconnect from the trauma event so that you can move on. Um, And I knew in the VA that was the wrong call. Mm -hmm. I knew that when somebody came to me and they were ripped apart by having lost somebody, whether killed in action or to suicide or a training accident, that that was a high stakes time. And I knew even then that I needed to ask them, tell me about that person. What is their name? Tell me stories about them. And to tell them, my goal is not to ever help you say goodbye. My goal is to help you uh, remember that person and walk in the understanding that that connection was real and is real. And then I went to TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, in part because um, I had admired their their work around helping those who are grieving. And I worked specifically as a senior director. Um, My team was uh, suicide prevention and postvention. And so I was the senior director for that team for about three years. And it was at TAPS that I really learned kind of a a comprehensive model and helped um, articulate that model along with the people that had been developing that model for the past 10 years before I had come. So we kind of consolidated the model, um, defined it, you know, in three steps, and then we trained it. And we trained it um, through, you know, national training events, talks we gave for the Center for Deployment Psychology. The NFL Foundation um, with PsychArmor did a a whole series of trainings that are available. They're 10 or 12 minutes each. I did five of those trainings. TAPS did, I think, a total of seven trainings um, for that series. Um, And it was all informed by the model that they had um, and been developing and refining for many years. So that's where I really got a deep education in what healthy grief is. And I would want to acknowledge that. Um, that's where I learned some of the phrases that I reference in the book about, you know, really, love Love lives on. Mm-hmm. was one of the, the phrases that they would use. Um, and it's because that bond is, is still there. Mm-hmm. And so it really put kind of words and enhanced and deepened my education around what healthy grieving is. Mm-hmm. It's about keeping the connection and carrying love forward. It's not about saying goodbye or forgetting or moving on. Or, or cutting off that connection
0: yeah i think that's uh it's revolutionary in the sense that you're not trying to cut yourself off from the things that happen you're trying to honor the people that are in a way that keeps them alive within you but in a healthy way and in our culture we have like cut ourselves off from being able to talk about the foxes in our gut the things that are hurting us the things that were hurting me as a veteran that i as a 26 year old uh, you know first lieutenant. I I didn't have the courage maybe or the, or the sense of safety that I could talk about those things that were going on inside of me in a way to be able to help process it in a healthy way. And I think it makes it such an important thing. I mean, when you talk about in your book, foxes in the gut, I, I thought, wow, that is exactly what was happening to me at that time. Um, it was one of the best analogies that I've ever heard about or guilt and shame and moral injuries that veterans experience and we often carry in our lives. Could you share and talk a little bit more about what are foxes in the gut?
1: I sure can. And if, if you allow me, and trust me with this, I'd like to gently challenge you just a little bit on something you just said.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: You said I didn't have the courage to speak to my pain when i was 26 years old Mm -hmm. i don't think it's a matter of courage i think warriors like yourself and so many others i've worked with have courage in spades i think it's a matter of not having access to the type of person a doc that really comes alongside you and gives you the understanding of why that is going to help grow you Mm -hmm. i think it's not about having the language to understand why would I do that mm-hmm. it's the default position right now of so many warriors to lock it in the vault and not make it about themselves because that's how they're trained and that's how they're wired is just uh, suffer in silence like the boy of Sparta right this is where the fox in your gut comes in because there's a cultural similarity there where stoicism is prized above mm-hmm. speaking the truth of what's going on for you and so it's that's courage, I suppose. Um, but that's how it runs if you don't um, give people an understanding of of why that's not going to grow them as warriors and as people. It it really needs to be understood from a different frame. Um, and so that's what I hope to do with my work and with my book, and I really hope to get this understanding into you know the Marine Corps, into TCOM, into other in the Army. As we train warriors, if you can give them an understanding Part of the path of a warrior is that you're going to have these things, this guilt that's going to potentially eat you alive. You're going to feel like maybe you could have done more, could have done it more quickly, or or should have been the one that Mm -hmm. was in the Humvee that day when your friend was taken out, or you were medically evacuated, but you probably could have stayed and gotten better in, in the theater and come back. Or you know, there are these things that are going to happen Or you're going to be a drone pilot and you're going to say, why am I having these nightmares? Well, why do I have this trauma reaction? I wasn't even, quote, in combat. Mm -hmm. So these are the things that are part of the warrior's path. And the thing to understand is to give warriors the access to docs that can come alongside them, who have their best interests at heart, who know how to grow them as warriors and help them walk through those valleys that's gonna make you stronger in the end. Mm -hmm. And that takes a kind of courage, but it's not because of a lack of courage that people don't do that. I just don't think they have that set of insights and the access to the people who could really confidently walk with them through those valleys.
0: Well, I I certainly wish I would've met you when I was 26 and to have this resource and, and what you talk about here in your book. And one of the things that really stuck out, there's a couple of things um, that really stuck out. And one of the things is is in your book, you write, um, in battles with our demons, attachment to those we love and trust has a power that can help us survive the obliterating pain of despair. This is the power of tribe. And when I read that, I thought, wow. That's so spot on. I mean, the power of tribe and why that it can be like the the anchor, the the thing that can help lift us up and the strength and support to keep us going on. And when we cut ourselves off from that because of our feelings of guilt and shame and unworthiness and um, whatever else, survivor's guilt that we may be carrying, um, we don't feel like we belong anymore, we don't feel like we belong on the in the in the warrior tradition anymore because of the things that we did or didn't do. Um, We lose that power. Yeah. Doc Springer, what is that power of tribe and why can this be so effective in helping people to to reestablish themselves and to recover from these experiences?
1: Well, tribe is a term that, you know, people from ancient time have held. Uh, so it's not a new word, but one of the, the people that's really written beautifully about this that I want to give some credit to here is Sebastian Huber mm-hmm. wrote tribe on homecoming and belonging. Um, I haven't been exposed to his work during most of the time that I was writing, but when I started reading his book, I thought, boy, this is really coming from the same understanding that I hold. And so his definition of tribe is the people that you would share the last of your food with. Mm. Um, and I really love that definition. From my work, I would extend it or add on just a little bit if I if I could, which is that it's the people that you take your emotional armor off with and you know that you can tell them anything mm. and they won't think less of you. Yes. And the, the tragedy to me is that in so many of these circles that I've hosted of you know these warriors at the reunions, I have never once had an instance of somebody shaming someone else for anything. Uh, people can, in those circles of love and trust, they can heal each other in incredibly powerful ways and be the moral authority as a group to release people from suffering and shame that they would otherwise lock in the vault so there's like you have this incredible weapon and it's sitting right in front of you but you never use it Mm -hmm. instead you sort of go out and become an army of one and you get ambushed by your demons when you get out there and you're isolated then that's when the the fundamental lie that drives self-destruction the lie that you're a failed human and you're Mm -hmm. unworthy of belonging in the tribe. That's where that lie takes root. That's where that lie grows. And so the power of tribe is the power to come into that space in a sacred way and say, no, you belong in this tribe. Mm -hmm. That's a lie. And there's nothing you've done or that you could do that would cause us to not love you and not accept you as part of our tribe. Mm -hmm you might need to clean up your act in this way and that way, and we'll help you get there, and we'll give you a, a boot in the back from time to time in love. You know, veterans will do that for each other, mm-hmm. and that's all part of it, but when people turn to those they love and trust, not just one person, but you bring in a fire team of people or, or a unit of people around you, a core unit, um, you are so much more likely to survive that valley of despair than if you try and walk it alone. Mm -hmm. And so veterans have what they need with each other if they could just understand that and turn to each other and trusted docs to facilitate healing and and develop the insights that will help them break through trauma.
0: Well, it is, and you, uh, you know, I try to walk it, uh, you know, you were mentioning how difficult it is to go to walk it alone, to walk that path alone. And uh, I certainly... That's the choice, that's the path that I went. And it let me to hit rock bottom and I was in uh, when I reached that point, um, you know, it was uh the most excruciating, oh, unendurable pain that I had ever experienced. Uh and it was because I, I hadn't processed all of this and I was carrying so much shame. I had that fox in my gut that was eating me up inside. And I, and which consequently was leading me to withdraw, was leading me to other things to feel good, whether it was alcohol, whether it was drugs, whether it was just any escapism that I could do and engage in. And it was just feeding this vicious cycle as I and then I hit rock bottom. And I love in your book that you point out that it is not depression that is linked most closely to those because I got close to suicide. It was the guilt and shame that I was carrying. That was what was, And that was absolutely accurate, which led for me to doing all those self-harming behaviors and withdraw and the depression. It was just an ugly, vicious cycle. Could you explain a little bit more clearly this this progression uh, of shame to suicidality for our audience?
1: Sure. So. It's important to say that there's no sort of one single cause of suicide or one single story of suicide. It's also true that for certain populations there are themes and common stories that tend to be more true. And I know this because I've worked with different populations. I've spent my career you know working with different populations that are very uh, diverse in their value sets in their outlook on life and all of it. Uh, for some people It's the sense of hopelessness, and this is, you know, I've achieved all of this in my life, was it really worth it, was it really meaningful, that sends them on that tailspin. For many of the veterans and the warfighters I've worked with, the story of shame was the dominant narrative. And so what I mean by that is that there's a code, that there's a code and a sense that many warfighters and warriors carry of what it is to be a warrior. How a warrior behaves, how they act, uh, what kind of person they are, what kind of values they live out, and so that can be a risk factor, because when you compare your own behavior and your own experience to a code, then uh, the difference between where you're actually uh, perceiving yourself and the code you hold is sort of that delta. That you know the difference between those is the degree of your shame that you carry for many warriors. And then there's this added piece about so many people in the military have lost someone, whether to a training accident mm-hmm. or combat or, or to suicide. And there is this other psychology that often kicks off when people struggle. They often struggle in transition from the military is a major time for risk. They often struggle when a relationship ends, mm-hmm. a pivotal change in your attachment status to a primary relationship that just means when you break up with someone you really love that was really interdependent with you that's a huge risk factor mm-hmm. for so many of the people that i've served and they will often go through a time of crashing and burning yep. and doing all kinds of things that are out of character mm-hmm. but what's unique about warfighters is that they will often compare their own struggling uh with the ghost of the person that they lost and they will go into a space of that person never would have struggled like this or that person was a true warrior or a true Mm -hmm. um you know he never (laughs) would have yelled at his his kids Mm uh made his kids look fearful he never would have done these things to his wife or um, had a drinking problem or been unable to hold down a job Mm -hmm. and so when you do that kind of comparison um, and you've got a lot of shame and you have agitation which is often a variable that's directly uh, contributing to a suicide attempt, that's a very dangerous, very dangerous equation. Mm -hmm. So the the sleeplessness and the agitation and this like toxic level of shame um, is a really dangerous combination and that was a very dominant theme, and is a dominant theme for many of the warfighters that I've I've served during times of crisis. Well,
0: that <clears throat> well, that was me. Uh, I mean, everything that you described there, and uh, you know, with my specific you know experiences and memories and and people involved, but it was a relationship that precipitated and led to that uh, spiraling down and all those thoughts and being bombarded with demons and struggling with those demons and. You know, it was something that, you you know, uh, there's a lot of good things that are out there that try to, people try to, to help people who are at that point. Um, but a lot of times they, they don't stick. They don't understand what's really going on. And for me, to help me to get out of it, I had to think uh, about who I was going to hurt the most. And it yeah. turned out to be my mother. It turned out that was the one person I was like, I can't, I got to find a way to keep going. In your book, you talk about this thing called the Warrior Box Project and how this can help veterans to meet the threats they face when they're confronted by that hopelessness and despair, just like where I was at. I wish I would have known about this Warrior's Box beforehand. I would never have got. maybe I, it would have helped me to get out of it much quicker. Could you share a little bit uh, um, about the Warrior Box Project before we, uh, we, clo- we get ready to close the show here?
1: Sure can. So the Warrior Box project is simply a tangible way to create um, a protective factor against times of crisis. It's just a, usually an ammo can, that you fill up with the pictures and mementos of the people and values that you would die for in battle. It's those people and those values that you would die for in battle, to your point, that have the power to keep you in the fight during mm-hmm. a time of challenge or crisis, and so when you give yourself the opportunity to remind yourself in powerful, tangible ways who those people are and who, what those values are, by filling up this warrior box or this ammo can, and we have we have a kit, and we, as Brian Vargas and I, he's a the co-developer, he's a Marine Corps veteran, we spent a lot of time being really thoughtful about developing a packing list and a different kinds of contracts that you have with your brothers and sisters and the people you love and trust to create tribe and to formally um, articulate what your core values are Mm -hmm. that would keep you in the fight and you put them all in one place and they become for many people that i've worked with a very powerful deterrent Mm -hmm. against believing that fundamental lie that drives self-destruction so I actually, um, next weekend I'm gonna to get together with a Marine that's coming up from about 29 Palms area and he's gonna deliver me a whole group of ammo cans um, to support the Warrior Box project. I'm sure he'll be on the freeway and people will be giving him a lot of space <laughs> he'll have in an open bag Probably, truck, yes. tons of ammo cans, <laughs> but um, he's, he's a yeah. wonderful, wonderful person and a friend of mine for many years. And um, I've had support from the Marine Corps community, especially around getting this out, Um, and I'm actively working with Brian Vargas to deploy this um, for Marines and others. And it is not just for warriors. I've had interest from people who have been uh, stuck with a domestic violence situation Mm -hmm. to remind themselves of their sacred values and the people that they want to get free from a situation for as a powerful form of support moving them in a the right
0: direction i think that's what's so great and i and i was just going to ask a little corollary is this something that can be because i think it can be that's transferable to people who are going through loss right now that are you know some of the things people that are experiencing from the from the boulder tragedy and uh, the the losses that they've had this year with COVID. these are something that is applicable uh in their lives as well they can put, do something that can help them to reconnect to their deepest core values.
1: Yes, it's a physical way of reconnecting with your meaning and your purpose and your values and the people that you would stay in the fight for. And that's really important when you just suffer a traumatic loss. Um, That can be something that if somebody's had no mental health issues whatsoever, or challenges or diagnoses, can put you at acute risk for a mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. And so understanding that and having something it's sort of like a, a war chest and the war on hopelessness mm. having that already ready to go so you can visit that and hold that and stay anchored to those values and those people is what really makes the difference because truly when we connect we survive yeah
0: yes you know I, that's so brilliant and it is so true when we connect we survive and i just love the the concept i love the the way that it can be so easily manageable and you can have it, it's tactile, it's right there. And boy, when you need it, it's you can grab it. You can see it. You can touch it. You can smell it. You know, it gets you right there. And I think it's absolutely, absolutely brilliant, Doc. Um, I can't believe our show is, it's 2 o'clock. Um, that went fast. It went fast. <laughs> uh, folks, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. We are broadcasting live here in the beautiful city of Denver, Colorado, here at KUHS-TV Radio Denver. We are the stream, and we're broadcasting live here. Uh, thank you, Henry, and everybody here in the, in the back room. They're the ones that make all the magic happen, all the lights, all the sound, making sure everything's connected and reaching out to all these various places that we have around the globe. Uh, we're being listened to by so many people. Thank you so much for tuning in to the council, uh, every other week, uh, without you, we wouldn't have this show. And, uh, we try, um, diligently to give you the best quality shows that we can to give you enlightenment, to give you hope, to give you a reason to keep going and to show that there are things out there that can make a difference in our world. Um, doc Springer, before I close the shows, I always ask my guests, uh, one question. Um, If you could give one bit of advice, one bit of wisdom from your life experience, what would it be?
1: Well, there's I guess one thing I would say in context of what we've just been talking about is to understand that when you're in crisis, your first instinct may be lethal. Your first instinct may be to isolate yourself and go into your foxhole and just suffer in silence. And if you do that, you can get yourself into a place of such obliterating pain mm-hmm. that you'll be surprised by some of the thoughts you may start to have and some of the self-destructive you know, dreams and intents that may come up for you. Um, I think understanding that that can be predictable and that there is something you can do that when you connect with others, you can survive it mm-hmm. is the thing to really keep in mind. And so I would just repeat, you know, when we connect, we survive. And so don't believe your first instinct. Um, you can trust me on this. Connect with those that you love and trust. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be the way to navigate those valleys.
0: Boy, Doc Springer, I can see why the veterans love you. And I can see it and feel it. And, and genuinely, you are, you are the real deal. Uh, Thank you. It's really amazing. And, and folks, this book is fantastic for those warriors in your life uh, who may need it and for others. It, this book is fantastic. Warrior, how to support those who protect us. Uh, you can get it uh, on Amazon, right? It's anywhere you can get yep. it. Yeah. Okay. Amazon.com. Her website is www.shaunaspringer.com. And uh, also, before we close, really quick, if you want to, Stella, uh, if you let people...
1: Nope. Yeah, uh, Stella Center. Stella is the organization that I'm with now that does a biological treatment to address the biological symptoms of trauma. So sleeplessness and uh, overwhelming panic, anxiety, anger attacks, difficulties concentrating. These are some of the target symptoms. Mm-hmm. And in the past year, we've scaled up 17 sites now across 12 different states. We're launching in Australia. And we're scaling up to meet the wave of demand that's going to be there for all of us coming out of this year. So StellaCenter.org is – or StellaCenter.com, excuse me, is the website if you want to learn more. Thank you.
0: Oh, you! thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, we need it. And uh, – Boy, folks, uh, what a times we live in. Thank you, Doug Springer, for joining us. It's been an honor. Uh, My really, pleasure. really an honor to have you on. All right, folks, thank you so much for tuning in to the Council. We have another fantastic show for you in two weeks. We are going to be talking with someone from the Second Wing Foundation, the Second Wing Fund. It's about youth suicide prevention, and uh, very excited to have them come on. Got some great shows coming up in the next few weeks. You want to tune in. Folks, thank you so much. The council is adjourned. May you all be well. May you all be free of pain and suffering. May you all be whole. God bless. We'll see you in a couple weeks.